0: The title of my lecture tonight, as you know from the announcements, is Seeing Religions Again, Religious Pluralism, or Religious Pluralism, Seeing Religions Plural Again. And to give you a brief roadmap up front, there'll be four main parts. In part one, I'm going to speak briefly about the fact of religious pluralism. In part two, I'm going to suggest a way of seeing religions, plural. In part three, some comments about the similarities and differences amongst the religions. And then in part four, Christians and the issue of pluralism, or alternatively, being Christian in an age of pluralism. So I begin with part one, the fact of pluralism. To say the obvious, we live in an age of religious pluralism. Awareness of other religions and other, other cultural traditions is one of the central features of our time. And to make this point, I want to refer to an important recent book, also highly readable, by Diana Eck. The title of the book is A New Religious America. And Diana Eck is a professor at Harvard University as well as director of the Pluralism Project. Let me briefly report to you some of the data that she includes in that book about religious pluralism. The central argument of the book is that religious pluralism or religious diversity is a fact of American life. The United States has recently and rapidly become the world's most religiously diverse nation. The 1965 Immigration Act Opened up immigration to people from nations outside of Europe. And the twofold result over the last 35 years has been first, a dramatic increase in immigration from Asia, the Middle East, and to a lesser extent, Africa. And secondly, this has brought about a dramatic growth in the number of people in the States practicing religions other than Christianity and Judaism. Some of these folks are new immigrants, but many of them have been born in the United States as children of the first wave of immigrants that began in 1965. Thus religious diversity and pluralism is not simply an intellectual issue within the academic study of religion, it is a cultural reality that Americans as citizens of a historically Christian, Jewish, and secular nation need to become aware of. Among the evidence that Diana Eck cites, there are six million Muslim Americans. There are thus more Muslim Americans than the combined total of Episcopalians and Presbyterians. Episcopalians somewhat over two million, Presbyterians somewhat over three million and there are about the same number of Muslim Americans as Jewish Americans. There are four million American Buddhists. The majority of these are recent immigrants and American-born children of Buddhist immigrants, but also a fair number of North American European, as it were, converts to Buddhism. And thus there are more Buddhists in the United States than either Episcopalians or Presbyterians. In lesser numbers, there are about a million Hindus, about as many as there are members of the United Church of Christ, and there are about 300,000 Sikhs. Now, the phenomenon of religious pluralism and religious diversity is not confined to major metropolitan areas. It is found in regional and even small cities. Eck writes about a huge white mosque in Toledo, Ohio, a great Hindu temple in Nashville, Tennessee, a Cambodian Buddhist temple and monastery in the farmlands of Minnesota, a Sikh Gurdwara in Fremont, California, Muslim Hindu and Buddhist temples in Salt Lake City and Dallas, Cambodian Buddhist communities in Iowa and Oklahoma, Tibetan Buddhist retreat centers in Vermont and Colorado, and many more. Her conclusion, the American religious landscape is changing very dramatically in our time. And to quote her directly, this is an astonishing new reality. We have never been here before, end of quote. Now this is very different from the world that I grew up in and that anybody in my generation grew up in. I grew up in a small town in North Dakota, probably not a representative sample of the United States to be sure, but I think everybody in that town of 1400 people would have identified themselves as Christian and we certainly had no Buddhists or Jews or Muslims. Or, to use an example that goes beyond small-town North Dakota, in the middle 1950s, a scholar named Will Herberg wrote a very well-known book for the time. And the book was about religious diversity in America. What's interesting is the title of the book, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. (laughs) Fifty years ago, that's what religious diversity in the United States meant. So the change is dramatic, and thus the need, the imperative, to understand other religions. A need and imperative that has been reinforced and made more urgent by the events of September 11th. The issue of religious pluralism is not simply a theoretical one about religions that we've heard of but might never encounter, but an immensely practical one. And for those of us in this society who are Christians, being aware of religious pluralism and other religions can, it seems to me, enrich our understanding of Christianity and what it means to be Christian. I am persuaded that we see Christianity, its nature and purpose, more clearly when we see it within the framework of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism can help us to understand our own tradition better. To refer again to Diana Eck, this time paraphrasing her, Eck says, whoever knows only one religion is unlikely to understand what religion is about. So I turn to part two. Seeing religions again. And here I'm going to provide a compact introduction to the nature and function of religions, and again note I'm using the plural, to the essence and purpose of religions. I'm going to suggest how we might see the major religions of the world and thus also how to see Christianity. And I will develop this part of my lecture by describing a general understanding of religions with six statements, all six statements commonly affirmed within the academic study of religion. That is, there'd be widespread agreement amongst religious scholars uh, about these statements. And in each case, I will uh, put the statement into a very short sentence of four, five, six words, and then, of course, explain it. First statement about religions. Religions are cultural-linguistic hyphen linguistic traditions. Pretty abstract, but it's actually a very helpful definition. Let me repeat it. Religions are cultural-linguistic traditions. And I owe this language to George Lindbeck of Yale Divinity School. I'm not sure that it's original with him, but that's where I ran into it. And what it means to say this is that each religion originates within a particular culture, and thus it uses the language and symbols of that culture. So in that sense, each religion is a cultural linguistic tradition. Moreover, if that religion survives for any length of time, and of course all of the major religions have, if that religion survives, it becomes a cultural linguistic tradition in its own right. That is, it becomes a way of construing the world, of structuring the world, and it has its own particular language and symbols. And thus, being Christian or Jewish or Muslim is a little bit like being French or Italian. It means I mean to be French means not only knowing French, it knows something about the ethos of being French. It means to have lived within a French world and to have that structuring your vision of life. And of course there's a sense in which being religious is different from this as well because it's a much more universal identity. One that transcends national and ethnic and racial boundaries. But nevertheless it's very helpful to think of religions as Cultural linguistic traditions, each with its own language, symbols, etc. Second statement about religions. Religions are human constructions. Religions are human constructions or human products. This is a corollary of the first statement. As cultural linguistic traditions, religions are human creations. And within that, I'm including their scriptures. Their scriptures are human products, and thus, for Christians, the Bible is a human product. Their teachings, their doctrines, their rituals, their practices, all of these are human creations, human constructions. This time I use a phrase from a Harvard religious scholar, Gordon Kaufman, Kaufman speaks of religions as, quote, imaginative human constructions, end of quote. And by imaginative, he doesn't mean imaginative in sort of a negative sense of the word, as when we say about something that sounds really far-fetched, boy, that's really imaginative. Not in that sense, but imaginative in the sense of both creative as well as using the language of the imagination, the language of images and symbol and story and so forth. Now, of course, not all religious people would agree with this statement that religions are human products or human constructions. Within the three major Western religions, the Abrahamic traditions as they are commonly called, there are many who would say that their religion comes from God, that it's a divine product and not a human product. I think you are all aware that official Muslim teaching is that the Quran was dictated by Allah to Muhammad. Within Judaism, Orthodox Jews, not all Jews, but Orthodox Jews typically affirm that uh, the Torah, including the laws given to Moses on Mount Sinai that are included in the Pentateuch, but also the oral Torah, All of it was given directly by God to Moses. And of course, fundamentalist Christians typically claim that the Bible is a divine product and thus infallible and inerrant. But within the framework of the academic study of religion, these claims look like a common human tendency to ground their sacred traditions in God, that is if Lots of religious traditions say this. Our tradition comes from God, and one of the things that is characteristic of religions is that they tend to ground their traditions in uh, divine origin. Now those first two statements both stress the human origins of religion. The third statement brings God back into the picture. Namely, religions are responses to the experience of the sacred, or the experience of God or the spirit, terms which I use synonymously and interchangeably. I take the reality of God very seriously. I am utterly convinced that there is a more, to use William James's marvelously generic term for the sacred, a stupendous, wondrous more, And I am convinced that this more has been experienced in every human culture. And that the origin of the major religious traditions lies in experiences of the more. So I see religions as human products, but as human products created as a response to the experience of the sacred in the particular culture within which each emerged. My fourth statement, religions are wisdom traditions. And I owe this statement to um, a man I'm honored to call my friend, Houston Smith. Uh, He speaks about this a lot, religions are wisdom traditions. Now, wisdom, in both religion and philosophy, wisdom is concerned with the question, how shall I live? What is life about? Well, this is what the religions, to a large extent, are about. They are disclosures of how to live. And by that I don't mean just morals, but something more comprehensive than that. They are disclosures of what life and reality are about. And it's not just that they have responses to that question. But they are the accumulated wisdom of the past, of centuries of thinkers. And this wisdom ranges from very practical wisdom to theological and metaphysical wisdom. The religions are a treasure trove of wisdom. Fifth statement. Religions are means of ultimate transformation. I'll repeat the sentence, religions are means of ultimate transformation. And I owe this short statement to Frederick Strang, author of an Introduction to Religion textbook published some 25 years ago or so now. Let me unpack that definition. Religions are means. It's partly that they're not ends. Okay. But it's also that they are means in the sense that they have a very practical purpose. And that practical purpose is ultimate transformation. And when we speak of ultimate transformation, we mean not just psychological transformation, important as that is, but ultimate transformation in the sense of spiritual transformation in the sense of the transformation of the self at its deepest level. That is the very practical purpose of religion. And that transformation is from an old way of being to a new way of being, from an old identity to a new identity. And the fruit or product of this transformation across religious traditions is compassion becoming more compassionate beings. This is central to all the major religions, and the saints of the various traditions look very similar in this respect. And sixth and finally, religions are sacraments of the sacred. Religions are sacraments of the sacred. Now let me define the word sacrament here. Those of us who are Christians are familiar of course with the two universal sacraments of the Protestant and Catholic traditions and then of course the five additional sacraments of the Catholic tradition itself. But I'm using the word sacrament in a broader sense and not just to refer to those two or those seven. Namely, a sacrament is a mediator of the sacred, or a sacrament is a mediator of the Spirit. A sacrament is anything finite and visible through which the Spirit becomes present to us. Now in this broad sense, um, nature can be a sacrament, music can be a sacrament, Okay? Virtually everything in human history has for somebody been a means whereby the Spirit has been mediated to them. Now to apply this definition to religions, the purpose of religions is to mediate the sacred. The purpose of their scriptures, their rituals, their practices, is to become a vehicle or a vessel for the sacred to become present to us. Now if one one takes this seriously, it also has an effect upon what we think being religious means. Within the Christian tradition over the last 300 years, especially for Protestants, but also for Catholics as well, because this is generally true of what's happened in Western Christianity since the Enlightenment, there's been an enormous emphasis on believing as what it means to be a Christian. That to be a Christian means believing in the Bible, in Jesus, in God, or in Christianity, or whatever. Well, if you see religions as a sacrament, the point is not to believe in the sacrament. The point is to live within the tradition as a sacrament and let the sacrament do its work within you. Let the sacrament mediate the reality of the sacred to you. And it seems to me that this is the purpose of the Buddhist tradition, the Muslim tradition, the Jewish tradition, and so forth, that they are means whereby the sacred becomes present to people and works within people. I turn now to part three. Reflecting on the similarities and differences between religions, thinking about their similarities and differences. And my claim in this section is very simple, very elementary. Religions are both alike and different. Put that down as an essay response in a college uh, test and see how many points you get for that one. They're alike and they're different, Okay. Let me talk initially about how they're alike their commonality. And, of course, I've already touched on this somewhat by speaking of these six characteristics that they have in common, but to say a bit more about their commonality. I want to mention four things here. First, they are grounded in experiences of the sacred. This is most obvious with the mystical strand of each religious tradition. The mystical strand is the most directly experiential strand of each tradition and the mystical strand of each religion is very similar to the mystical strands of the other religions. Secondly, they're very alike in the path that they teach. Most religions have a path, a way, at the center of their message. Uh, This is perhaps most obviously true for most of us, or apparent to most of us, in Buddhism, which speaks of the fourfold path or the fourfold way, but also teaching about the way, the path, is utterly central to the Christian tradition, to the New Testament, and it's interesting that the earliest name of the Christian tradition, according to the book of Acts, was the way. Okay? And the path that the religions teach is remarkably similar. Within the Christian tradition, it's symbolized by the cross as a metaphor for the internal, psychological, spiritual process of transformation, namely, dying to an old way of being, being born into a new way of being, dying to an old identity, being born into a new identity. At the center of the Buddhist way or path is letting go, and letting go means letting go of one's prior understanding of who one is and what life is about and being born into a new understanding of all of that, not just a cognitive intellectual understanding but a new way of being. It's also central to the Muslim tradition The word Islam itself means submission, meaning radical centering in God and therefore not centering in culture or tradition or yourself. And in the Muslim tradition, one of the sayings attributed to Muhammad is, die before you die. That's the same thing as death and resurrection as a metaphor for a process that happens in the midst of this life, die before you die. Thirdly, the religions are very similar in their characteristic practices, and perhaps the most characteristic practices of religion are worship and prayer. And fourthly, as I've already mentioned, they're very similar in the kind of life that results, namely the life of compassion. Now, does seeing all of these similarities mean that the religions are all basically the same? No, it doesn't. They're very different. They're as different as the cultures and histories that shaped them. They're as different as the cultural linguistic traditions in which they were born and which they became. So. Recognizing these similarities doesn't mean they're all the same. So let me speak briefly now about three ways of understanding their similarities and differences. Three ways meaning I'm gonna talk about three scholars who have spoken about this. They end up saying very similar things. The first of these is William James in his magnificent book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, now exactly 100 years old. By the way, back in 1999, when all these lists were being accumulated of the most important whatever of the last century or the most important whatever of the last millennium and so forth, um, I'm not sure who drew up this list, but it was a group of uh, intellectuals, scholars, and so forth, large group. The 100 most important non-fiction books of the 20th century. William James's Varieties of Religious Experience was number two on that list, which is very impressive and it's still marvelous to read. In his wonderful concluding chapter, one of the richest chapters in uh, religious scholarship that I know of, one of the topics that James deals with is the similarities and differences between religions. And he says that they are most similar in three ways, in three respects, that they are most similar first in the kinds of experiences reported within each religion, experiences of the sacred. Second, they are most similar in the practices that they enjoin, and thirdly, they are most similar in the behavior that results, once again, compassion. And then James says, they are most different in their beliefs and doctrines in their conceptualizations, if you will. And when you think about it, that makes perfect sense. For beliefs and doctrines, that is, concepts that are shaped into religious teachings, beliefs and doctrines are most affected by culture. Most reflect the particularities of the culture in which they come into existence. The second scholar I want to refer to as an aid to thinking about similarities and differences is, um, I've never been quite sure how to pronounce his name, René Guénon, G-U-E-N-O-N. Might be René, René Guénon, who knows. But anyway, I have to ask somebody who does know sometime. But Guénon, okay, makes the distinction between His technical terms are esoteric core and exoteric form. Now the esoteric core of religion, substitute the word internal if you want, okay? The esoteric core, internal core of religion is really that experiential core that he sees lying at the heart of each religion. The exoteric form is the external forms of the religions, their scriptures, their institutions, their beliefs, and so forth. His claim, identical with James's but using this different language, is that the esoteric core, I think Ganon would even say the mystical core, of each of the major religions is very similar and perhaps identical and it is in their exoteric forms that they are different. The third scholar I'll mention here is one I mentioned briefly before, Houston Smith. Houston Smith speaks of, quote, the primordial tradition, end of quote. And by that phrase, he means a tradition going back to the beginnings I think he'd even say of humanity, but going back to the beginnings of the religious traditions. And it's not only that it goes back to the beginnings, and in that sense is primordial, but it's also, he argues, a common understanding underlying all of the enduring religions of the world. And Smith finds that there are two primary elements in this common underlying uh, understanding. First, a multi-layered understanding of reality, namely that in addition to the visible world of our ordinary experience, there are non-material levels of reality. And secondly, a multi-layered understanding of the self, you know, body, mind, soul, spirit. And he finds uh, this multi-layered understanding of reality in the self to be the conceptual heart of every one of the religious traditions. Now, for all of these scholars then, what the religions share in common is this internal core of experience. Now I want to make two comments about the external forms, okay? The differences. The first of these comments is that these external forms matter. And there's a tendency, I think, amongst uh, us to think that, uh, gosh, if they all share this internal core in common, then that's the point of unification. If we could just drop the external forms, we'd be a lot better off. One oftentimes finds this expressed in the common statement in our time. Uh, even many of my students in secularized Oregon will say this. They'll say, Well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. <laughs> and religion and spirituality are very oftentimes put in opposition to each other. And by religion here, I mean the institution, the teaching, the tradition, the external form, if you will. Okay? Now, I wouldn't, I don't doubt that a person can be spiritual without being religious, but what I want to challenge is the contrast or the opposition between those two. Because it seems to me, and here again I'm indebted to Houston Smith, that religion, meaning now the institution and teachings and so forth, religions are the way that spirituality gets traction within history that religions are to spirituality what schools and colleges and universities are to education. You can become a self-educated person by avoiding all institutions of learning, but it's like reinventing the wheel every generation. So the first way in which I would say the external forms matter is that they are meant to be vehicles of wisdom, vessels by which the spirit speaks to us and operates within us, and so forth. But there's a second way in which the external forms matter as well. Namely, and this is kind of the downside, when the external forms, the exoteric forms are emphasized, That is, when being Christian means believing this set of beliefs and not that set of beliefs, or do it for any tradition, being Muslim means believing this way and not that way. When the external forms are emphasized or made central, then the differences between religions become more apparent than their similarities. And when the external forms, the scriptures and doctrines, are absolutized, as they are in religious fundamentalism, then religious exclusivism is the inevitable result. Religious dialogue basically becomes impossible if the external forms are absolutized. Conversion becomes the goal, and conflict is often the result. So, the external forms matter, but they matter precisely as relative expressions, okay? as vehicles of the sacred and not as the absolute themselves. I turned to part four. The implications of religious pluralism for Christians or being Christian in an age of pluralism and here I will speak very directly about how I, as a Christian, see this. And my first point in this section is the need to reject Christian exclusivism. And I'm not pretending this is a dogmatic pronouncement from God. This is how I see it, okay? But I see it strongly this way. <coughs> What I mean by Christian exclusivism is, I suspect, apparent to all of you. It's what I, and I suspect many of us who grew up in the church grew up with, expressed as Jesus is the only way of salvation, Christianity is the only true religion, Uh, it's important to convert the world to Christianity because there are souls perishing lost in shades of night, and so forth. And Christian exclusivism has been part of conventional Christian teaching for centuries. There's no denying that. I don't think it's the authentic voice of the tradition, by the way, but it's been part of conventional Christianity for centuries. Within the Roman Catholic Church, it's, it's been expressed with that remarkable, I don't know if it's remarkable, uh, with that wonderful, I don't know if it's wonderful, but it's a Latin phrase, okay, and it goes like this, extra ecclesia, sorry, extra ecclesiam nulla salus est. Outside of the Church there is no salvation. And of course, after the Reformation, the Roman Catholic tradition understood that to mean that even Protestants are out of luck. Not just non-Christians, but all non-Catholics are out of luck. Let me mention that the Second Vatican Council radically changed that, the Second Vatican Council of the 1960s, and actually openly affirmed that God is known in all of the religious traditions of the world. Uh, The Vatican may be backpedaling on that right now. It's hard to know what the next few years will disclose. Now Protestants of course rejected that Catholic notion, partly because it rejected them. And we Protestants said, no, there's salvation outside of the Catholic Church, there's salvation through Jesus, but only through Jesus, and of course we've got Jesus. So it ended up being the same thing. Now, as I just mentioned, I grew up with this, but I now see things very differently. I can no longer affirm that Christianity is the only way of salvation. There's more than one reason I can't. I'll mention three. The first reason might be called common sense. (laughs) (laughs) When you think about the claim that Christianity is the only way of salvation, it's a pretty strange notion. Does it make sense that the creator of the whole universe has chosen to be known in only one religious tradition, which just fortunately happens to be our own? (laughs) And of course, there are some Christians who would make that even narrower that it's only our particular version of the Christian tradition that conveys saving truth. The second reason is that Christian exclusivism, again by which I mean simply Christianity is the only way of salvation, a second reason that that's impossible for me to affirm is that it's very difficult to reconcile that notion with the Christian emphasis on grace. You know, radical grace means God's unconditional love and acceptance of us. But if one must be a Christian in order to be in right relationship with God, then there is a requirement, namely that. And we're suddenly talking about requirements, not about grace, about law, not about grace. And the third reason I can't accept the Christian exclusivism of my youth is my experience, my study of other religions, and my acquaintance with people of different religious traditions. It now seems clear to me that God, or the sacred, or the spirit is known in all of the enduring religious traditions and not simply in our own. And if I thought I had to believe that Christianity was the only way, I could not be a Christian. Moreover, to turn to the upside of this, it seems to me that seeing the similarities between Christianity and other religions adds to the credibility of Christianity rather than threatening it. When Christianity claims to be the only true religion, it loses much of its credibility. But when Christianity is seen as one of the great religions of the world, it has great credibility. The similarities, it seems to me, are cause for celebration and not to be resisted. Well, that's my first point on being Christian in an age of pluralism. My second point concerns the significance of Jesus for Christians within a pluralistic framework. And here I want to begin with the relatively few exclusivistic passages that are in the New Testament. There aren't very many of them, about three. I'm not gonna talk about all three, but I'm gonna talk about the one that's most familiar. But these passages which speak of salvation being only in the name of Jesus and so forth reflects the centrality and the utter decisiveness of Jesus in the lives of these early Christians. These statements that Jesus is the only way can be understood as exclamations of devotion flowing out of the experience of having found access to God through Jesus. Jesus is the way that I have found and he's the only way. And this language about the only way, in words I quote from the contemporary philosopher of religion, theologian John Hick, who taught for quite a few decades at Claremont, this language Hick suggests is best understood quote, as, quote, the poetry of devotion and the hyperbole of the heart. And I love that because it, it honors the genuine devotion and ecstatic sense of deliverance that lies behind those statements. Those statements are a little bit like the language that lovers use for each other. When one lover, well, when the lover says to the beloved, you're the most beautiful person in the world, It would be a wooden-headed literalist who, overhearing that, said, oh, I don't know. (laughs) You know, cute maybe, but (laughs) the most beautiful person in the world. That's the hyperbole of the heart. That's the poetry of devotion. And it expresses honest, genuine feeling. But whenever one makes doctrine out of hyperbole, one is creating problem, But let me turn specifically to that best-known of the exclusivistic passages, John 14, 6, where, according to John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by me. To a lot of people that sounds crystal clear. Salvation is only through Jesus. But it's very important to ask about that verse. You know, it says, Jesus is the way, right? It's very important to ask about that verse, what is the way which Jesus is? Jesus is the incarnation of the way for John, just as he's the incarnation of the word of God, the incarnation of the wisdom of God. He's the incarnation of the way, the embodiment of the way. Well, what is the way that he embodies. And for John, it's real clear, this is true for the rest of the New Testament too, the way which Jesus embodies is the path of death and resurrection. No one comes to God except by dying to an old way of being, being born into a new way of being, dying to an old identity, being born into a new identity, in this sense, Jesus is the embodiment of the way. If one thinks that it really means you've got to know the name of Jesus in order to be saved, then we're almost talking about salvation by syllables. You've got to have the right words. It's not about having the right words. Okay. One of the best exemplifications of the point I'm making right now about John 14, 6 is um, contained in a sermon preached at um, Boston University School of Theology, a Methodist seminary in the 1950s, as I recall this story. And it was a Hindu professor who was preaching. He was on the faculty, not a Hindu who had become a Christian. He was still Hindu. And the lectionary text for the day that, his turn and came up to preach in chapel was John 14, 1 through 8. And he read this text out loud to the gathered community and said uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by me. And then he looked out at the gathered community and said, this verse is absolutely true. Jesus is the only way, and then he added, and that way is known in every religion in the world. Which is to say, Jesus is the incarnation of a universal truth and universal path, not the incarnation of a unique and exclusive path unknown anywhere else. Then, the other point I want to make about Jesus in the context of religious pluralism, that is, the significance of Jesus for Christians, is that I want to underline the utter centrality of Jesus for us as Christians. That is, I don't think religious pluralism should make us start talking about Jesus as, um, uh, you know, one of the lights, or something like that. I mean, in one sense I think that's true. Okay, But I don't think we should water down what we say about Jesus in order to embrace religious diversity. Because constitutive of Christian identity is, Christians are people who find the decisive disclosure of God in Jesus. Just as Muslims are people who find the decisive disclosure of God in the Koran, and Jews are people who find the decisive disclosure of God in the Torah. That's what makes them Jewish, Muslim, Christian. And we don't need to water that down at all. We can say Jesus is for us as Christians the decisive disclosure of God without needing to say that he is the only disclosure of God. okay? You can say, decisive, he's utterly central for us, without needing to deny the other religions. Christer Stendhal, now in his 80s, former dean of Harvard Divinity School, bishop of the Church of Sweden, New Testament scholar, wonderful human being, gave a lecture last year in which, amongst other things, uh, he talked about Um, religious exclusivism and Jesus and so forth. And uh, making a point very similar to the one I'm making, he said this, we can sing our love songs to Jesus with wild abandon without needing to tell dirty stories about other religions. (laughs) And what he meant by that is without dismissing other religions, But it's the positive point that I want here. We can sing our love songs to Jesus with wild abandon, even while affirming that of course God is known in the other religious traditions. Then my conclusion, quite brief. Why be Christian in an age of religious pluralism? And I want to develop this point by reading to you an email interchange communication that I was involved in earlier this year. Actually, it's now last year, about six months ago. So this is an email I got from somebody who had um, been reading Meeting Jesus Again for the first time, basically a friendly email, but it uh, included this question. I have put my glasses on for this, okay? He writes, In your research, you have been exposed to many different cultural traditions about religion and the effects on their followers. Yet you say you are still a Christian. Why is that? Is there something about Jesus Christ that makes him different from all of the other religious leaders? or?" Is Jesus just one among many of the world's religious leaders? I'm wondering what you have found unique in Jesus that keeps you in the Christian fold?" And I responded as follows. Let me begin by describing how I define Christian. It's very simple. A Christian is one who lives out his or her relationship with God within the framework of the Christian tradition. Just as a Jew is one who does that in the Jewish tradition, a Muslim one who does that in the Islamic tradition, and so forth, I don't think God cares whether we are Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and so forth. All are paths of relationship with God and paths of transformation. So why then am I a Christian? In part, because being part of a religious tradition and religious community is important to me. I am nourished by it. Though I think one can be in relationship to God apart from religious community, I experience so much richness in religious community that for me not to be part of one would be like refusing a banquet in the midst of hunger. And why Christian rather than Jewish or Buddhist? Not because I can make a case for the superiority of the Christian tradition, but very simply because for me the the Christian tradition feels like home in a way that no other tradition could. In addition to which I find the Christian tradition extraordinarily rich, its antiquity, its wisdom, its beauty, at its best, its goodness. Finally, I do not see Jesus as unique, except in the sense that the Buddha and Muhammad and so forth are unique, that is, not exactly like anybody else. Rather, I see him as the incarnation of a universal truth that is also known in other traditions. Namely, he discloses what God is like and what a life full of God is like. And then I ended the note with with best wishes, which is what I give to you as well. Thank you very much. I don't get the transforming thing. It isn't just learning and trying to be good or like Jesus Allah, Buddha, or is it? What is this transformation? Guess I don't have it. Um, I, like, I like straightforward, simple questions. And, and I also think it's, it's, it's on to something really important. Um, the Christian life, or the Buddhist life, and, and I could say oh, the Muslim life, but, so I don't have to say all of that, I'll just say the religious life, isn't about trying to be good. It's not about trying to be bad, don't get me wrong. But it isn't about trying to be good. It is about a transformation of the self at a deeper level than that. Now, goodness is always better than badness, so don't misunderstand me there. But the notion that the Christian life is about trying to do something, trying to believe, trying to be good, it's, 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 the, it's the self that is trying to do that. <laughs> and I really think, at its deepest level, the Christian life And I'm going to use, I think it's even from 12 Steps, I'm not sure. The Christian life is about letting go and letting God. Uh, That doesn't give you a recipe for how to do it, but it's about the transformation of the will and not primarily about uh, the exertion of the uh, conflicted will. Okay. And I think that transformation occurs. Um, The Christian life is about... Uh, a relationship with God and if the word God sticks in your craw because you're not sure what I'm talking about, the Christian life is about our relationship to what is. And by what is I don't mean the world of space, time, matter, and energy is understood by science. I mean by what is, yeah that, but something that's more mysterious than that. Okay? And and. Uh, The way our relationship to God gets nourished is through the very simple act, if you will, of paying attention to that relationship. There's nothing very mysterious about this. The analogy is to a human relationship. A human relationship grows and deepens to the extent that you pay attention to it, that you spend time in it. And so what's being talked about here is a transformation of the self that comes about through paying attention to our relationship with God. That can take so many forms. The most common form is prayer, and real close to it is worship, but it can also take the form of dream work, journaling, remembering God in the course of the day. All of that's involved in paying attention to the relationship. It's about Practice, practice, practice. Okay, So it's not about trying to be good, it's about trying, uh, here I'm using the word trying, it's about seeking, maybe that's no different, but it's about seeking to become more and more centered in the reality that we name God. And I just realized I've gone 5 minutes over our agreed upon ending time. So, I do want to honor that some of you, you know, may have a date you need to get to or something like that tonight. I want to thank you for your attentiveness. I hope to see a number of you tomorrow and or I know I will see a number of you tomorrow. But once again, thank you for being here. It says something very good about you that you're interested in this. Good night.